Our scripture passage this morning comes out of Peter's first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1. We're beginning a new study this morning, an expository study. We'll be working our way through this first letter of Peter. And uh, it may go a little slow at times uh, because we're going to cover maybe first part of the first verse today <laughs> and uh, the rest of the first verse and second verse uh, next week. But uh, be reading First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice greatly with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Shall we pray? Father, as we come now to... The Apostle Peter's writing of this first letter, Lord, and what he says about hope, what he says about your love for us, all that he has for us in this book, Father. I pray that as we open the pages, not only today, but in the weeks to come, Father, that you would speak directly to each one of us in a way that we know, God, you are God. You are in control. And you have a purpose, a loving purpose in all things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The ancient Romans had a saying that's still often quoted today. They said, while there's life, there's hope. While there's life, there's hope. You see that quoted today when people say, as long as I'm still alive, I've got a chance. That's the way we Americans like to put it. But like most sayings, like most adages, while there's some truth in the statements, there, there's no guarantee of certainty. It's all dependent upon our human spirit, our human ingenuity, our, our human strength that we can overcome the adversity, whatever it is. In a couple of weeks, there's a movie coming out called Hope Runs Deep, the 33. It's been advertised as the 33 on TV. You might remember the story. It's the true story about the 33 miners in Chile who were buried alive in 2010, three miles below the surface. They were buried alive by the catastrophic explosion and collapse of a hundred-year-old copper and gold mine. And over the next 69 days, if you can imagine, 69 days, an international team, including scientists from NASA, worked desperately day and night to try to rescue these miners. 
And the very first sign of hope was a full 17 days, 17 days after the cave-in, when they drilled down to see if they could get, you know, they try to get air holes or whatever, and they drill down to see where they are. When they pulled the drill bit back up, there was a note on a red piece of cloth that was attached to the drill bit. All 33 men were still alive. And families and friends, as well as millions of people globally, waited and watched anxiously for any more sign of hope. And the event was a worldwide phenomenon. All the world watched the rescue of all 33 miners when they were brought to the surface. But there's a reason they call it a phenomenon. This kind of outcome from this kind of catastrophe is rare. It's unusual. There's no guarantee of certainty. And while there's life, there's hope. In extreme cases, most often it goes the other way. Well, this morning we're beginning a new sermon series in the Apostle Peter's first letter. And the theme of the Apostle Peter's writing is hope. Hope. And it's not a hope grounded in human ingenuity or the human spirit or in our human ability, but it's a hope that's fully grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. So turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want us to begin at verse 3 page 1476, where Peter introduces the theme of this letter in the third chapter, or the third verse of this first chapter. And instead of looking at hope from a human point of view that looks for hope while there's still life, Peter speaks of a living hope, a hope that is alive, a living hope that's grounded in Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 3 in this doxology, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As believers, we have a living hope. In the 13th verse, Peter tells us here to fix our eyes completely on the grace brought to us Fix our hope completely on the grace brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are to fix our eyes completely on this hope. The message of Peter's first letter is hope. Where Jesus Christ is, there is a living hope. Now in our study of John's letter in Sunday school class and comparing it with the gospel as we do some cross-referencing, we see that a major theme in John's writing is love. Love For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. A new commandment I give you, he quotes Jesus as saying, that you love one another even as I have loved you. And it's been pointed out that a major theme in the writings of the Apostle Paul is grace. Grace, for by grace you have been saved, for it is the gift of God. And likewise, the major theme in Peter's writing is hope, a living hope. It could be said that John is the apostle of love, calls himself John the Beloved, or the apostle whom Jesus loved. Paul is the apostle of grace. Peter is the apostle of hope, the apostle of hope. If you want to know about hope, if you need hope, and we all do, go to Peter. See what he has to say. Chuck Swindoll shows us how much we need this kind of hope in his book, Hope Again, When Life Hurts and Dreams Fade. And he writes, Hope is a wonderful gift from God, a source of strength and encouragement in the face of life's harshest trials. When we are trapped in a tunnel of misery, hope points to the light at the end. 
When we are overworked and exhausted, hope gives us fresh energy. When we are discouraged, hope lifts our spirits. When we are tempted to quit, hope keeps us going. When we lose our way and confusion blurs the destination, hope dulls the edge of panic. When we struggle with a crippling disease or a lingering illness, hope helps us persevere beyond the pain. When we fear the worst, hope brings reminders that God is still in control. When we must endure the consequences of bad decisions, hope fuels our recovery. When we find ourselves unemployed, hope tells us we still have a future. When we are forced to sit back and wait, hope gives us the patience to trust. When we feel rejected and abandoned, hope remains. Hope reminds us that we are not alone. We'll make it. When we say our final farewell to someone we love, hope in the life beyond gets us through our grief. Put simply, he says, when life hurts and dreams fade, nothing helps like hope. When Peter, that old fisherman, wrote his first letter, the followers of Jesus Christ were in desperate need of hope. Life hurt and dreams were fading. We don't know the exact date of the first letter of Peter, but we know it's about mid, uh, mid-60s, 64 AD, somewhere around there, about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we certainly know the times. Nero was emperor of Rome and therefore ruler over most of the known world. And in order to make way for his extensive building projects to uplift himself, he saw to it that Rome was set on fire. The city consisted primarily of two- and three-story wood tenement houses that were crammed together around courtyards and, and narrow streets. So it set much of the city, most of the city, on fire. Now, attempts to put out the fire were thwarted by arsonists. They continued to start the fire and fought off people. They, they could have been hired arsonists. They may have just been looters. You remember in Ferguson, Missouri, there was a lot of arson because it makes it better for the, the looters. And the residents of Rome fled to the open fields while they watched three districts burn completely. And of the 14 districts of Rome, only four were untouched by the fire. When Nero was blamed for the fire, as well he should have been, he quickly looked for a scapegoat. And the scapegoat were the Christians. They were an easy target because they were already disliked by the Romans and hated by many. They'd already been persecuted and were being persecuted throughout the Roman Empire. And Peter seems to choose his words to describe these times very quickly. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12... He uses words that, that, that kind of speak of, of these times. He says, verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. And he had used the word fiery testing in his, his introduction, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation, the fiery ordeal. I think he's using a play on what was going on in Rome. Of course, not the whole Roman Empire was burning, but people certainly knew what happened in Rome. About this same time, somewhere around this time, probably just before Peter wrote this first letter, Paul was beheaded in Rome. 
Shortly after Peter finished his second letter, Peter would be crucified in Rome. They were difficult, troubling times. Every year, every person who lived in the empire was required to give an oath to Caesar. They were to offer a sacrifice, go into a pagan temple, and the sacrifice could be just as little as a pinch of salt, just something. And they were swear an oath to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Well, what's the big deal? Just go to the pagan temple, sprinkle a little salt in mouth the word, Caesar is Lord, and you and your family will be saved from a lot of trouble. If they refused, they were enslaved, imprisoned, or killed, as tens of thousands were. It's estimated that just in Rome, over 100,000 Christians were murdered under the reign of Nero. 100,000 sounds like a lot until we look at our day and even before this recent stuff in the Middle East, over 100,000 Christians are killed every year in our world. And now that's gone up since things going on in the Middle East. Of course, the believer's response is, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. To swear to Caesar is to deny Christ. I want to show you one more verse in 1 Peter before we talk about Peter himself, the writer of the letter. Turn to the last chapter of 1 Peter. Chapter 5 at, at verse 13. Peter is finishing the letter by sending greetings to the Christians from those who are with Peter at the same place. He mentions Silvanus, who is the same as Silas, uh, same Silas who had traveled with Paul. This is one of the reasons we think that uh, this was written after Paul had been executed, because now Silas is with, with Peter, as is John Mark. And then he mentions some others who send greetings in verse 13. He says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. John Mark, who wrote the gospel. But the question is, who is this she who is in Babylon who were chosen together with you? They were chosen together, and Paul uses the word chosen to refer to believers in Jesus Christ. This refers to the church, the she, wherever Peter is, is writing from. And he calls it Babylon. So who or where or what is Babylon? Where are these believers residing? And from where is Peter writing? Now, there's no evidence either in church history or in Scripture that uh, Peter ever actually ministered in the ancient city of Babylon, even though at the time there was still a large community of Jews there. Babylon is probably another name for the city of Rome. He's referring to Rome. And of course, we do have reason to believe that Peter ministered in Rome and was probably martyred there. Also, Rome is called Babylon, referred to as Babylon, in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Babylon refers to Rome. In those days, and in later persecution times of Christians, it was not unusual for Christians in their writings to speak or write cryptically, kind of a code kind of thing. When they spoke of Babylon, all the Christians knew who Peter was talking about. That's talking about Rome, but their persecutors wouldn't know. Even today, when missionaries are serving in some countries around the world, they have to be careful about what they say in emails and letters. And we have to be careful about how we respond and, and send our, our love and support to them in the emails and letters because... Uh, they need to be careful how they write, and they'll often write cryptically 
You know, because these are tough enough times without offending the authorities and bringing more unwarranted trouble for them. And we who read the letters and they who read our letters from them know what we're talking about. We know what we're referring to. They, we know what they're referring to. But those who persecute them wouldn't have a clue what this is talking about. So this also says something about the times in which we live. Well, turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1. So we're going to talk about Peter. In ancient letter writing, the writer to the letter put his name right at the beginning of the letter. We always sign our letters at the end. And when you get a long letter from somebody and you don't recognize the handwriting or maybe it's typewritten, what do you do? You always try to figure out who wrote it first. So you look at the return address. If that's not much help, you, you go to the end uh, of the letter. And uh, when you find out who it's written from, then you have an idea how you're going to take this letter, right? Because it could be from a beloved friend, it could be from your Aunt Dora, you know, and you're going to take it that way. Or quite frankly, it could be from an antagonist who has something to tell you a thing or three uh, about. And uh, how you, who the letter is from is going to tell you how you're going to, to take the letter and receive it. And it was simpler in those days because they, they put right at the beginning who the letter's from, and then they say right after that who the letter is to. So we know who it's from. Verse 1 of chapter 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those. And then he goes on to name uh, the scattered Christians that he's writing to. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So we know it's from the Apostle Peter. But we don't want to approach this as we're reading it from a stranger or make presuppositions about the writer that might affect how we receive what he has to say. The question would be, as we'd read any letter, what do we know about Peter? And most importantly, what would it be about him and his life experiences that would lead us to believe that what he says about hope is he is bringing us comfort that will indeed instill hope into us in each one of us in our own troubling circumstances. It's like comfort. People who haven't been through it aren't very good comforters, are they? They, they don't understand. They don't get it. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4 says that since we have been comforted by God, we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. So what is it that we know about Peter that would give us confidence? That what he says will give us hope? We want to hear someone who's been through it, from someone who's been through it, been through the toughest of times. We want to hear from someone who knows what it's like when life caves in on him, when all hope is lost, who knows to spare, who knows what it is to weep uncontrollably. We want to hear from someone who's been uplifted in that suffering and despair and knows what it's like to have a true and living hope in Jesus Christ. And that man is Peter. So we're going to look at some things from Peter's life. So turn to, to Luke chapter 5. This is going to be like an Awana Bible drill this morning as we look at some of these in the, the, the Gospels. Luke chapter 5, verse 5. And that's on page 1267 if you're using the Bible in the rack. Luke chapter 5, verse 5. When I think of Peter, one of the words that describes him is obedience. 
In Luke chapter 5, in the first, fifth verse, the men had been out fishing all night. They had caught nothing. And Jesus, from the shore, gives a word of instruction. He told them to put out into the deep water and let down their nets for a catch. And then in verse 5, it says, Simon, that is Simon Peter, answered and said, Master, we have worked hard all night and caught nothing. I think that's the way Peter would have said it. At this point, Peter's on shaky ground. Because he says, Master, Lord. The first requirement of submission to a Lord or Master is what? Not to talk back. Not to answer back. Jesus is the Lord. He is the Master. It's not up for debate. Get your boat out there. And right out of the chute, Simon Peter shoots off his mouth. You first of all should know that we've been working hard all night. We know fishing. That's what we do. That's who we are. We are fishermen. And we've worked all night and we haven't caught anything. But somewhere in the middle of that verse, Simon quickly changes his tune. I don't know if it's humor Jesus. (laughs) We'll just go along with him because he's Jesus. Or I don't know if Jesus gave him one of those looks. You ever gotten one of those looks from your mother or from your from your dad? Yeah. And then we give a look back and mom says, Don't give me that look. (laughs) Well you had it first. (laughs) Yeah. We've all been there. I think there's some of that going on. Maybe he just wanted to prove that Jesus didn't know as much about fishing as he did. But then he says, Peter says, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And as you read about the event here in Luke 5, you find Simon Peter in a boat learning obedience. And look at the, his response to the great catch in verse 5. After they caught so many that the boats began to sink, they were calling from help for help from the shore. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Like, in, like Isaiah, Isaiah when he was in God's presence, and Isaiah's response when he saw the Lord was, I am ruined, I am coming apart. Peter became painfully, fearfully aware of his own sinful condition. Lord, I cannot stand to be in your presence. Get away from me. I am sinful and you are not. And the Lord's response is at the end of verse, about the middle of verse 10. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything. They left everything and followed him. So the writer of this letter is someone who left everything to follow Jesus He followed Jesus in obedience. He'd learned obedience. Turn to the sixth chapter of John's gospel, John chapter 6, at verse 53. John chapter 6, the 53rd verse. After Jesus had fed the 5,000, the crowd followed him around the seashore, and they wanted to make Jesus king. What a deal. A king who feeds us, and ask nothing of us. It gets people elected all the time. You'll see that happen <laughs> uh, this next year. You'll see it happen this, this Tuesday. 
People who make promises, but that's what people want. They want people who make promises. And, and, and Jesus, could, of course, could not stand for this. So Jesus turned on his heels, as it were, and he confronted the crowd with the exacting terms of discipleship. And we see that in, in verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Of course, Jesus, we know, we're celebrating communion today. We know what Jesus meant there. We need to fully appropriate him, all that he is. But they didn't get it. And the crowd left. Most of the disciples quit following him, except just the twelve. Look at verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Peter and the rest of the twelve had given up everything to follow Jesus. They had nothing. Ever been in that place where you had absolutely nothing? No home to go to, no possessions to claim, no bank account, nothing? Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Verse 69, we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where Jesus is, there's a living hope. Peter learned obedience in following Jesus. Secondly, we see from the Gospels that Peter learned faith. He learned faith. Turn to the 14th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 14, page 1209. People wonder, why, why are there four Gospels? Well, if it takes four Gospels just to explain Peter, you can imagine how many Gospels it takes to explain Jesus Christ. <laughs> because each one has a point of view. We get a fuller and fuller picture, even of Peter, in this. In Matthew chapter 14, we have another boat story. Jesus sent his disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee when he went up on the mountain to pray all night. They were caught in a great storm. They were buffeted by the wind, and they couldn't go anywhere. They were stuck out in this storm. And they saw Jesus coming out to them, walking on the water, and they cried out, It's a ghost! It's a ghost! And Jesus says, Do not fear, it is I. He told them to take courage. And as usual, Peter spoke first. And we see this in verse Am I on the right page here? Verse, yeah, 28, 28. <laughs> I was going to say verse 14. Verse 28 of Matthew chapter. Thanks for keeping me straight. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you. Now, Jesus was always so gracious to these men. He just told them it was him. And Peter responds, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Verse 29, and he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now the rest of the disciples still in the boat must have been thinking, here we go again. Peter opening his big mouth and planting his big feet on the water. <laughs> now, he's, now he's drowning. Ever felt like you're drowning? Drowning in debt, drowning in sorrow, drowning in tears? Something is taking you down. Something is pulling you down. Something is weighing you down. Verse 31, Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter in a boat learning obedience. Peter on the water learning faith. Turn to the 18th chapter of John's Gospel. 
John chapter 18, verse 10, page 1330. In John chapter 18, verse 10, the scene is in the Garden of Gethsemane. The scene is the, the Roman cohort and the temple guard have come to arrest Jesus. We saw Peter learning obedience. We saw Peter learning faith. Now in John chapter 18, verse 10, Peter is acting tough. Acting tough. The 10th verse. Simon then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. Now, if you're aiming for the ear, that's a pretty good shot. If you're aiming for the head, as I believe Peter was, that, that's a near miss. But nevertheless, there is Peter in a garden, acting tough, defending his master. But stay in John chapter 18, because we go from a garden acting tough to a courtyard telling lies. Telling lies. The 25th verse of this 18th chapter. Peter stood warming himself, standing and warming himself. Someone said to him, You are not also one of the disciples, are you? You're not one of his disciples. Now this is a crux moment for Simon Peter. Here's the guy who said, Because you said, So we will go deep. This disciple said, Lord, if it is you, I am over the side. I can walk on water. Here's the one who said, no one is going to take my Jesus. And out with a sword, he, walks up, he whacks off Malchus' ear. Now someone asked him, are you one of his disciples? And he denied it and said, I am not. And then someone says, did we not see you in the garden with him? Peter would have been easy to identify. He's always out front. He's the guy with the sword. He's the one that Jesus said, hey, put that away. He was right out in front all the time, but Peter still denies it. Denied it a third time. And at that moment, the rooster crowed. Matthew, the gospel writer, tells us that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. He wept uncontrollably. So here we see this little picture of Peter that we begin to build up here as we get to know Peter. He's in a boat learning obedience. He's on the water learning faith. He's in a garden acting tough. He's in a courtyard telling lies and then running scared. And finally, he's on a seashore being restored. Matthew chapter 21, the 21st chapter of Matthew. And we'll look at verse 17. Jesus is on the seashore. He's, he's fixed a, a wonderful charcoal breakfast for the, for the disciples made of fish. And in chapter 21, verse 17, right before then, Jesus twice has asked Peter if he loved him. And twice Peter has said, yes. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then verse 17 of this 21st chapter Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And Jesus said to him, or Peter said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. So why did we take the time to paint this little picture of Simon Peter? 
Because it's important that we know who wrote this letter of 1 Peter. It's important that we have a flavor who is writing it and what we want to hear now and how it applies to our time. Because Peter is going to call the people of God, including us, to some pretty straightforward living and behavior. He's going to speak to us as men and women in the routine of our days and in our own circumstances, and he's going to say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is what you are to do. This is what you, how you are to respond. And it's so important for us to realize that Peter is not writing somewhere in an ivory tower, just putting some ideas down that, that may help. But he was an ordinary fisherman. And he had a family business of fishing. And he was just like all of us here in Grace Baptist Church. And it was in the routine of his days that God reached into his life and laid a hold upon him. And he was like many of us, so quick to speak sometimes, and yet so fearful. There were times when Peter was tremendous. Great faith. Who do men that say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The crux of what we studied in, in 1 John this morning. And Jesus said, Oh, Simon, only my Father in heaven could have revealed this to you. That came directly from God. He revealed it to you. Then there were, in a matter of moments, Peter was saying something, I'll go to the death for you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. But Jesus had also told Peter while they were in that upper room, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. One of the neat things is that Satan has to ask permission. <laughs> but one of the things is that God gave permission to Satan. But Jesus said, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is going to be your ministry, Peter. Strengthen your brothers. And that's exactly what Peter is doing when he writes this first letter and also when he writes his second letter. Having been through it, having been sifted like wheat, failing and fearful, having his faith buffeted badly, drowning in sorrow, he was a failure, yet he was restored. And in his restoration, he obeyed Jesus Christ. And now he is seeking to strengthen those who are his brothers. He writes in 1 Peter what is essentially a discipleship manual for our very times. And here's the point we need to get this morning as we finish up. And I get this from Alistair Begg. Alistair Begg writes, or says, he said it in a sermon, much of what we regard as disqualification for serving Jesus Christ, God in his sovereign wisdom and purpose turns them into stepping stones rather than stumbling blocks. God will use everything that has overwhelmed you. Everything. God will use everything that has threatened to take you down and out. God will use everything that made you want to run. God uses everything that has backed you into a corner. And in his sovereign wisdom, according to his purposes, 
God will use them and he will fashion you so that you can serve your brothers and sisters in Christ who are going through these things. As we look back at our days and look back at our disappointments, we look back at our shattered dreams, we relive our hurts or maybe we're experiencing a hurt right now, we can be assured that like Peter, in God's economy, God doesn't let anything go to waste. Not a thing. Didn't we already sing those words this morning? Something beautiful, something good, all my confusion, he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife, but he made something beautiful of my life. And the verse goes this way. If there ever were dreams that were lofty and noble, they were my dreams at the start. And hope for life's best were the hopes that I harbored down deep in my heart. But my dreams turned to ashes and my castles all crumbled. My fortune turned to loss. So I wrapped it all up in the rags of life and laid it at the cross. That's what we're going to do right now as we gather at the Lord's table. We're going to take all our brokenness, all the things that have come against us, and use this as a time to come to Jesus Christ and offer them and lay them at the cross. Shall we pray? Father, I think of the words of King Hezekiah when he got that threatening letter from King Sennacherib of Assyria. Lord, I'm coming, or he said, Hezekiah, I'm coming to take you out to kill all of you and all your people to subjugate you. And, and uh, Hezekiah took that letter. He went into the temple of God and he rolled it out before you, God, and said, this is for you to handle. I roll it out to you. And Father, whatever it is this morning that each one of us need to roll before you, to give it to you, to give it all to Jesus. Father, we do that right now. And we do it in Jesus' name.